Hi, you're listening to the Health Disparities Podcast from Movement is Life, conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. I'm Bill Finnerfrock, and today I'm discussing health disparities in health policy with Dr. Tammy Huff. Uh, Dr. Huff is on the executive committee of Movement is Life, and she's an orthopedic surgeon practicing in Columbus, Georgia, at St. Francis Orthopedic Institute. Dr. Huff, thanks for uh, being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you kind of got into the whole issue of health disparities and um, what caused you to, to kind of be interested in that particular topic. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for having me. Um, I've been interested in health disparities for a very, very long time. Um, I'm originally from Columbus, Georgia, and had the opportunity to work all over the state of Georgia, where we have a various um, amount of health care in different parts of the state. Um, after training down in Louisiana, again, in different aspects of the state, you have drastically different access to care, whether you're in New Orleans proper or all the way down to the bayou in some of those smaller areas like Houma, Louisiana the ability to get access to physicians drastically changes. And that's what really opened my eyes. After leaving down from Louisiana and coming back to Georgia, I started practicing in a tiny little town in the corner of Georgia. And that's when it really kind of hit me in the face that we do not have access. And our patients need that access to care and also access to hospitals in particular. I practiced in Waycross, Georgia, and right before I started in that area, one of their hospitals closed that was about 45 miles south. And all of a sudden, patients are coming to see me from 100, 150 miles away. Wow. And that really started me on that path of being more passionate about care. One of the things that I uh, was particularly interested in talking to you about uh, is this issue of, uh, of rural. Um, we often think about health disparities as an issue that is correlated to race, ethnicity, uh, gender, um, but the, the geographic uh, disparities is something that is often not as well recognized. And you just talked about the fact, I thought it was interesting, you said, uh, you know, one of your local hospitals closed, it was about 45 minutes away. Uh, and, and I think that's uh, the way that a lot of r- folks in rural areas is 45 miles away is nothing. nothing. You know, I, I live in the Washington, D.C. area, and that would be like telling me that every time I needed to go to the hospital, I have to go to Baltimore uh, to get it. I go, you're crazy. You know, why would I go all why would I have to go all the way to Baltimore? So talk to us a little bit about that rural aspect of uh, health disparities. Access is so important in rural areas. And it's just a lot of it is logistical, just to be quite honest. Um, in my little area it was that I was practicing in, Waycross was a county seat. So that entire county was about 50,000 people, but the county seat or the city was only 15,000. Wow. When you have a city that small, you have very limited public transportation options. So it is a Herculean activity to try to go to a doctor's visit, especially in the case that I was mentioning of a hospital that was closed, so 45 minutes away, again, that's a very far drive. We had people coming from all the way in Kingsland, Georgia, which was close to an hour away, right on, right on the Georgia-Florida border, and they were coming via the Medicaid van. So they only, that van only travels once a day. So even if your appointment's at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, they pick you up at 8 a.m. 
So taking the time off of work, if you need to have a caregiver come for you, come with you, it's a huge undertaking, and that really limits your options. Right. Not to mention having physicians in the area and things like that, but for the patient themselves, just getting to the doctor is hard. Yeah, we saw that uh, same phenomena uh, situation or circumstance in uh, Hazard, uh, Kentucky recently. A group of us went there, and it was the same thing. They had a van that would take folks to Louisville for some of the specialized care, but it was once a day, and it left at 8 in the morning, and then it left at 5 or 6 in the evening. And so you know, you, that was how you got there, and you ended up, you just had to sit there in the waiting room until if you had an appointment at 2 in the afternoon. How does that impact uh, you as a surgeon uh, in terms of, of how you have to think about providing care, um, not just the actual surgery, but all the follow-up uh, care and that. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, part of being a healthcare provider in that situation? That's a great question because even with people that have their own vehicle, it's challenging to schedule pre-op appointments and post-op appointments and physical therapy, when you don't have transportation or, heaven forbid, you're traveling from a rural area where it's 45 minutes an hour away, number one, getting ready for surgery is a challenge. Trying to make sure that you have all those appointments on the same day for patients is very, very important because they only have that one form of transportation. After surgery is a major issue because they need physical therapy. The whole point of doing a knee replacement or doing a hip replacement is to improve your function. But in many of those cases, you need to have some form of therapy. Um, in many of our rural areas, there aren't many physical therapists. There definitely are very, very few occupational therapists. So finding someone that can provide that service that also takes your insurance is very challenging. In addition, we don't have access to high-speed internet in many of those areas. So a possible solution has been Let's do telemedicine. But the internet services, we have a challenging time just even getting cell phone service in those, some of those areas. So they don't have access to high-speed enough internet so they can watch the videos. So that becomes very, very challenging. Um, it seems like a simple solution, but there really isn't a great solution for folks. So we're looking at um, the government's talked about changing the way that they pay for uh, surgical procedures, in um, particular uh, joint and knee replacement, and moving to what is referred to as a bundled payment uh, as opposed to a fee-for-service payment. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the bundled payments and, and what that might mean, for example, some of those rural communities that, that have the challenges that you talk about, and then what that means for you uh, as a surgeon and how you may view patients? Uh, again, another great question. So with the bundle payment model, the idea is that you have one big pot of money that you need to take care, use to take care of the patient from getting them ready for surgery, for the surgery itself, and then after the surgery. In rural areas, the proportion of people that have medical comorbidities such as obesity or diabetes or heart disease, tobacco use, are much higher than the general population. Those comorbidities make you at a higher risk for surgical complications, specifically the obesity and diabetes. So that bundle or that group of people are already higher risk from that. In addition, we just talked about all the access issues of trying to get them to the doctor to make sure everything's we use always the term teed up or to make sure that everything is ready to go. 
So that's a challenge. So as a surgeon, I have to make the decision, okay, Mrs. Jones desperately needs to have this knee replaced because she can barely get around and her kidney disease is actually getting worse because she can't, she's taking so many anti-inflammatories. So I know she needs to have this done, but she has all these risk factors. She has obesity. She has diabetes. She has kidney disease. I just finally got her to stop smoking. So she has all these problems. Do I go ahead and do that surgery because I know it's the right thing to do? Probably. Is my hospital happy about the fact that I'm going ahead and doing that surgery because she's such a high risk? And if she gets readmitted, we're on the hook for, all of, for that additional readmission. And we are, that's counted against us in some of the Medicare metrics because we, have, we took the risk on Ms. Jones. Um, that's a challenge for a surgeon. And currently, the balance for me is to continue to take those patients. But that's a very, very challenging proposition for surgeons moving forward, especially in the current um, hospital climate and especially if you're an employee physician where it, that's de-incentivized. So... You you talked about some of these access issues and and uh, what's not available PT or home health. Um, it seems to me that means that a, a, a likely situation might be to say, all right, well, we're going to put you in a nursing home uh, post operatively. But that that is that nursing home admission is that covered by that bundle payment? You're on the hook for that as well. It's all supposed to be included in that bundle payment. Wow. So we. That brings up a couple of issues. One is um, studies show that people that have to go to a nursing home or a skilled nursing facility don't rehab quite as fast or don't do quite as well as people that go home. So that's just what studies show. In addition, it does cost more to go and get that care. And on top of all of that, they're away from their family. So right. you're already, many of these communities do not have those kind of facilities. Right, because just like they don't have a PT, there's not a skilled nursing facility. That might be 45 minutes away. Exactly. And to add, they have all these medical comorbidities. They're 45 minutes away from their family. Of course, they're going to have more depression. Of course, that's going to slow down their progress. So from a financial standpoint, it's not the best situation from um, an outcomes perspective is not, but actually from a mental health and patient care perspective, it's not the best situation. I mean, the, the payment models themselves can't necessarily deal with uh, getting a PT, getting a skilled nursing facility into a community, but are there things that could be done to how we pay the hospital, how we pay the surgeon to kind of mitigate some of those uh, things. So the, as you said, you know, your hospital is not happy with you, but because of, you know, your moral compass, you're like, no, I'm going to provide care to this patient because it's the right thing to do. Um, but are there things that, that can help the hospital say, no, that's fine. You know, Dr. Huff, you know, we're happy to provide care because the way that the hospital is now going to be compensated may take that into account. Absolutely. Um, what we really need is what's called risk adjustment. So the ability to know that Mrs. Jones is going to be a more complex patient. We've documented all the complex problems that she has. We've also tried to mitigate those. We've done everything we can to get her as healthy as possible. With that in mind, we're still moving forward with her surgery. So if instead of getting just a $1,000 bucket of money for Mrs. Jones's surgery, we need to have a $3,000 bucket of money because of her higher risk. And that risk stratification would give us an opportunity or those of us that 
are willing to take on those more challenging patients, we are no longer penalized for that. The system would then take that into account and reimburse accordingly. So the the idea of risk adjusting isn't new. Uh, you know, the managed care plans, for example, have uh, been getting risk adjusted patient uh, payments for a long time. Saying if you have a disproportionately high percentage of patients with diabetes, obesity, whatever it may be, they'll get an adjustment in their payment. Um, so you're, you're, I guess you're kind of just talking about taking that concept and just moving that down to the physician hospital level uh, as these models ask you to take on risk to, say, build those same things into your payment model? Yes, very similarly. And also, too, when uh, the results are published of how our hospital is doing with readmission rates and things, for there to be some acknowledgement that we are doing more complex patients. Right. So the length of stay may be longer, that um, that those things are taken into account. Yeah, we just, uh, we just had a conversation uh, with Dr. Wisnia and got into that, that, that the hospital that is caring for lower-risk patients may get a five-star rating, and the hospital that's caring for the higher-risk patients may get a three-star rating. And the public perception is that the five-star rated hospital is a better hospital than the three-star rated hospital. But in reality, you may want to go to that three-star hospital because they're actually more experienced dealing with high-risk patients. That's I think that's kind of what you're talking about, right? That's exactly what I'm talking about because of there's so many rating agencies and so many ways of getting that information out. We just want to make sure that people understand all the things that come out. So if you are a patient who is super healthy, super active, and your only problem is your need for a knee replacement, that's one thing. But many of us are very, very complex and have a variety of different things that are medically with us and also um, access as far as ability to get to our appointments and things like that. We, we need to look at all those different things. Yeah, and I think that that last piece is something I wanted to explore a little bit more because the the concept of risk adjusting for diseases uh, and disease states is pretty well accepted. But what you're talking about, too, is some form of risk adjusting for the social determinants of health. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? And this is one that I'll be frank, I'm not, I don't have a great answer for. But in our country, there is definitely a divide between ur- urban and rural. And especially in our rural areas, the social determinants of health, such as where you live, your access um, to care, transportation issues like that, really are something to think about. And with the census coming up, maybe that's an opportunity to look at, are there certain zones where people, there isn't a hospital within a 50-mile radius. There isn't um, and then a specialist in a 50-mile radius, or there isn't a primary care physician. Is there only one primary care physician for this entire area? If you come from one of these high-risk areas or um, more challenging areas, when you do seek care, is there some benefit for that if you go to a larger center? Because we know that we can't do follow-up. Your follow-up might might not be as great as we would like to. So those are some things that, um, that as, a, as a provider, I think about is how can we adjust for that? Well, and I think, I mean, you're, you started out your answer with, you know, you don't know what the answer is. But I, I don't know that we anybody knows right now, but... 
I think one of the things that that we've been talking about, and we've been working with uh, Congressman John Lewis from Georgia on uh, legislation to say, all right, even if we don't necessarily know the answer, we at least need to ask the questions. Can and and are you familiar with uh, you know that that initiative and and what's going on there, and what do you think about that? Having that discussion, I am familiar with it, and having that discussion is so important to just get that out in our political atmosphere or in our in the air. Um, many, whenever there's a problem, there's a challenge. One of the biggest challenges of addressing it is knowing and acknowledging that there's that problem, and that's what I think the the key part of this bill is is the have that ability to acknowledge that, yes, there is a concern. Yes, there is a problem. Now we can work on trying to find the solution for it. So if you could wave a magic wand and, and we said, uh, Dr. <laughs> Tammy Huff is, uh, you know, now in charge of everything. What, what, you know, one or two things would you like to see uh, folks do or come away with uh, from either this conversation or if it's a public policymaker, uh, folks, uh, what kind of would, would you like to have them take away from all this? Hmm, magic wands. <laughs> <laughs> to understand the importance of access and availability in rural areas. Um, it doesn't matter how great your insurance is or how active and proactive you are as a patient. If you can't get, if there's nobody around you that um, does this procedure or you don't have a, health, a physical therapist or anyone around you in a hundred mile radius, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can't do anything. So in my perfect world, our political representatives will understand the importance of there being dedicated funding for rural health in every part of the country, especially um, in areas such as the South and Appalachia. I've had the chance to be up in Hazard myself, so I know what they're dealing with because it, the frustration that they have there is the exact same thing I see in my patients. So if I had that magic wand, it would be just people that are not in those areas to acknowledge and understand um, what they're going through and that to know that we need to earmark, earmark funding to help support the hospitals and facilities that are there and to do what's necessary to recruit more people to those areas. Yeah, I've uh, I've spent a fair amount of time in in rural America and and dealing with some rural health uh, issues, and I think you're you're spot on that that you know a lot of times it's you know I've I've told people having an insurance card uh, that's great, but if you don't have a healthcare provider, if you don't have a hospital uh, within reasonable access, um, that that card is really meaningless. So, where in some communities access to healthcare may have its basis on economics, in other areas of the country, access to healthcare is a matter of geography. And so we have to look at both. We have to how do we resolve and eliminate barriers to healthcare based on economics, but how do we eliminate those same barriers to healthcare based on geography? Many times, and I think history will prove this out, is the foundation of a community, the foundation of society is the health and wellness of the people in that society. So one of the big concerns in the political climate of our country right now is the decline of rural America, of um, these areas that were machinery-oriented and things like that. 
a big part of that is now those people are suffering from disease states and there's no access, there's no health care in those areas. So as a country, we really have to take a step back and realize, yes, we can advocate for jobs and things, but if our fellow citizens are not mentally and physically healthy enough to take those jobs, what good is that? Yeah, I think um, there's often, uh, whether it's, you know, the, you know, some political leaders or media that homelessness is an urban phenomena, Um, you know, and it's like, well, you know, you may not see it, you know, when you drive down the highway through rural America, but 50 yards back in the woods or, you know, off out of sight, uh, it exists. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't exist. Can I share a sure, quick story absolutely. about that? So you just brought up a great point. Um, when I was working in when I was working in Waycross, Georgia, I had a patient um, out of control, type two diabetes, um, had knee problems and things like that. But main, her main concern was her diabetes, and she kept initially it was a toe, and then initially the toe wouldn't heal, so we had to take the toe off. And before we know, knew it, we had to actually amputate her foot to save her life. Well, we did that. She actually did great in, in the hospital. She healed, uh, sent her out, told her, hey, I need you to follow up in two weeks. Two weeks goes by. We haven't heard anything from her. Another week goes by. And we're in a small community. So we were all looking for, we actually started looking for her because we kind of had an idea where she was supposed to be living. Nothing. At about four weeks, she comes in. And she had been in, for, in the ER. And she was admitted and we had to clean her wound up and everything. But then we noticed that as soon as she got out, her sister was back in the emergency department for just an exacerbation. What was happening is they were using the emergency department and one of them being admitted to the hospital as a housing solution. Because what later we found out is that her and her sister, who was blind and has COPD and multiple medical comorbidities, and now my patient, who was an amputee, were living out of a station wagon next to the swamp. And they were living like that for the last three months. So while all this was going on and we're like, why can't you control your diabetes? And you know, you got to keep your wound clean. They were living out of a car. And the only time they had guaranteed access to hot meals was when they came into the hospital. Well, yeah, that's such a poignant example of, of kind of what we've been talking about and working on. And uh, I just want to thank you for everything you're doing uh, in your community and by giving voice and, and talking about these kinds of things. And I uh, appreciate you taking the time to spend uh, some time with us today to talk about it and look forward to uh, working with you moving forward. So thanks, Dr. Huff. Thank you. Thank you.